Hello and welcome back to Franklin Covey's newest podcast, C-Suite Conversations with Scott Miller. That's me. I'm your host each week. You may know I'm also the host of Franklin Covey's other podcast on leadership with Scott Miller, now the world's largest weekly podcast dedicated to leadership, airing on Tuesdays and Fridays. This podcast is weekly as well, but airs on Thursdays. And how it's different is we focus on discussions, interviews, conversations with people that are in the C-Suite. Some of them perhaps were conscripted. Some joined accidentally. Others were very intentional on wanting to become a member of the C-suite. What they all have in common, however, is they're willing to talk about their journey, the rises, the mistakes, the messes, the successes, the things that they've done well and maybe not so well so that each of you, that may be peers and contemporaries or those on your own rise into the C-suite can learn about what it's like in that special position. Today, our guest is Colin Walsh. She is the CEO of Varro Bank, a bank that you're going to learn a lot about and are hearing a lot about in the news recently. Colin, welcome to C-Suite. Hi, Scott. Great to be here on the podcast. So in a moment, I'm going to have you talk about Varro Bank. Do I have that pronounced right? That is correct, Varro Bank. And I want to talk about your history prior to that because you've had a remarkable run in some of the most prestigious financial institutions worldwide. Would you take a few minutes and maybe reorient our listeners and viewers to this remarkable career you've had and how it's cultivated now at Varro Bank? Absolutely. Thanks, Scott. So, yes, as you said, I mean, I spent 25 years before founding Varro um, in some of the really interesting companies. So I started my career very early on at GE Capital. Um, I then went to American Express. I spent um, about eight or nine years here in San Francisco, where I am today at Wells Fargo, uh, and then spent uh, a number of years in the UK. So working for Lloyds Banking Group and then back at American Express before I started the company. And uh, yeah, it was full of you know all sorts of exciting experiences, leadership lessons, uh, things that were early in my career in terms of how I started to build a bit of a playbook about how to be successful in business, as well as uh, later in my career where I learned about leading leaders and, and bigger organizations. And I'm happy to share some of those lessons, but I think the most significant uh, of all of that was through those years in these large organizations was starting to see how the system was working very well for the haves, but not for the have-nots. And so people who did not have wealth or income or access to resources were really being left behind, both in sort of explicit and implicit ways. And this is what ultimately led me to found Varro, which is really a champion for the Main Street consumer, the, the, the lifeblood of our economy, you know, the, the, the healthcare workers and the people driving uh, vehicles and that are you know, gardening and housekeeping and, and dog sitting and dog walking and all the things that are just so essential to American society and building a bank for all of us and a bank that really helps pull people ahead in their lives and make progress in their financial lives and most importantly, feel much more control and agency and see a path to prosperity. And so that's what Varro is all about. I'm excited to share more about those journeys and, and how my early experiences have helped shape who I am today as a leader and, and uh, being the founder and CEO of an organization that, that is working very hard to transform the banking industry. We'll talk about Varro's mission in just a few minutes. I want to stay on your own career for a couple of minutes, storied, sure. you know, three plus decade career. A couple of questions. I want you to think about your time at Wells Fargo, American Express, Lloyd's, mm -hmm. and others. What's like one singular 
great decision you made about your career. Perhaps it was a departure, a joining, a return. Does one singular decision stand out that you might unpack for us in a positive way? I, well, there's, it's not just one. I mean, I think first and foremost that has been sort of a theme for me throughout my life, and even today, is to really focus on building things that really matter. And, and to matter to whoever your audience is, whoever your end customer is, and to the organization and institution that you're part of, uh, that to me is so fundamental about uh, also being able to tell that story in a compelling way uh, and to communicate, communicate, and communicate. And we'll talk more about some of these themes, but, but I would say that as I sort of went from um, GE to Amex to Wells, back to Amex, so on and so forth. Like a lot of it was, you know, some of it was intentional, some of it was opportunistic, where where just opportunities, you know, open, you know, doors opened, and and sometimes you just have to walk through them. And and I feel like that was a, it was an exciting uh, career and trajectory through many years. But I'd say the big things were always finding those projects or finding the product solutions that were important to the end user, were important to the organization. Also, there's a theme about just learning to work really hard. And, and some people may not want to hear that, but if you want anything in life, and I think I learned those lessons at a very young age, that you just have to work hard for the things that you want. Um, and, and then you have to treat other people with respect as well, because the relationships that you build throughout the course of a career are so important, whether it's to uh, have somebody help you out when you need some help, or you have people to go to for advice and counsel when you're trying to solve very difficult issues or you have problems that 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 you're confronting. Um, so I would say the hard work, the relationships, the willingness to be vulnerable and ask for help are all so critically important uh, along the career journey. It's intriguing you mentioned hard work. I'm frequently asked by the press or other podcasters, what's the one commonality that the 500 or so guests that have joined the two podcasts that I host for Franklin Covey have in common? And I always answer, you're gonna find this underwhelming, but an insane work ethic. It's an indefatigable focus on getting stuff done. They're not workaholics. They just, they don't leave anything on the one yard line. They run it to the end zone. They work very hard. They value hard work and they model hard work. It doesn't surprise me, that's what you picked. Well, and I would say that, you know, whether you're a business person trying to build a company or you're an artist or you're an athlete, I think anybody who wants to excel at what they do, you have to put in the hard yards and, and, and nothing comes easy in life. I mean, the one thing that as a leader that drives me a little bit crazy is when I hear like people with like a real entitled attitude. It's like, you know, what? I'm sorry, but if you want to be really successful and you want to create something very meaningful in the world, you've got to be able to uh, put it put in those hours and, and, and that focus, that mental focus is so critically important. The other commonality the guests share on both podcasts is there's no such thing as overnight success. Everybody sees the Academy Award, they see the best-selling book, they see the Olympic gold medal, but they have no idea the decades that went in to That's the books 100%. that didn't sell, the auditions that didn't end up, the businesses that went bankruptcy, no such thing as overnight success. Colin, flip the script. I've researched you enough to know you'll answer this one well. Show some vulnerability. What's a poor decision you made in your career? Something that you're willing to share, you regret, you say, gosh, had I had more information or had I been less impulsive? Something you shared that others might actually benefit from learning that maybe they're following the same path. Yeah, I would say, and, and you know, in the 
grand scheme of things, I don't think it was a huge setback or a mistake. But I was at Amex um, early in my career, and I got enticed to leave uh, to pursue another opportunity because it was a big jump up in pay. And I was quite young at the time. I was in my sort of mid-20s. And so I moved out to LA and I worked for a company that was a little bit of a house on fire, like just a lot of stuff that wasn't working so well. And, you know, I did my best to sort of uh, manage the pieces that were under my control. And, and you know, I feel like we did actually a pretty good job sort of helping to reposition the business. But the, but the parent company decided to sell. And so, you know, nine months later, I found myself in a position where I had to um, think about finding another job because the company was going away. I mean, they wanted me to stay, but it was not something that I wanted to do. And 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 it was a little bit of an unsettling period in an early stage of my, my career. Uh, fortunately, one of the people I'd worked with at GE was up at Wells Fargo and told the, the person who I met with, who was at the time the vice chair of the bank, uh, just hire this guy. <laughs> and I was, so I went up for the strangest interview of my life where I showed up and um, she said, I have three positions. Which one would you want? And I said, well, you want to tell me a little bit about them? And she said, um, sure. And, and I said, well, I just want the hardest one. I want the one that's going to be the biggest challenge. And, and next thing I knew, I was moving up to San Francisco. Uh, but it was a very unsettling period in my life because I went from New York to L.A. And now I was in San Francisco all within the course of a year. Um, and you have all these thoughts around, oh, wow, am I going to, is this going to set me back? Am I going to be able to move ahead in my career with this much change? Uh, and so I would say that was an area that that created a lot of anxiety and uncertainty early in my career. And, and I learned from that also around um, not, always, you know, the grass is always going to be greener. There's always going to be someone who will pay you more money. I had this conversation a lot with, with employees, particularly younger employees. And you have to decide, like, if what you're doing, you really care about. Going back to my earlier comment, like, are you, are you working on something that that really matters um, and, and stay the course. Now, I'm not saying that it doesn't make sense to make a career change or to, um, to explore different opportunities at different stages, but don't be impulsive. And I think I was a little bit uh, uh, romanced by higher money and all the rest of it at that stage of my career. Speaking of things that matter, let's talk about Varro Bank. Uh, you're doing something that matters, right? In many ways, you've left this storied career of large institutional brand named banks you're not the Johnny Appleseed in many ways of a different kind of banking. Will you talk a little bit about VARO, why that's passionate for you, why that's so important, what it is, who it's serving? 100%. Take that with you, yeah. Like. Yeah, so Varro, in many respects, for me personally, is accumulation of you know the culmination of many years of work inside the financial system. Having you know, I I worked for these big uh, institutions. You could call it like Wall Street to Main Street. You know, I, I said you know I was working in these companies that were doing really interesting things. And as as a person who was moving up in their career, I was I was definitely learning a lot and learning how to deal with complex regulatory issues and how to bring products to market and so on and so forth. But but really, it was this this kind of nagging feeling that that the system is not working for so many, and that could I take all of this background and experience and build a platform that could help people move ahead in their financial lives and do it as a regulated institution. And this was one of the key differentiators for us right from the beginning was that we didn't want to just build another app. We wanted to build a bank that could use all the sort of superpowers that the banks have today from a product perspective, from a data perspective, but do it right and do it as a tech, tech bank that was using the latest technologies to solve 
very fundamental problems. If you think about for uh, the 99%, so many people, there's actually 60% of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck today. And, and how do you think about basics on cash flow and how to get to a state of persistently positive cash flow so you can start to think about investing in the market or buying your own home or starting a business is so fundamental. Thinking about the basics of building savings habits. And, and once you start to have some positive cash flow? How do you start putting aside savings and setting goals and accomplishing things that you want to achieve in your life? How do you think about credit? You know, just even accessing credit if, if you're starting out or if you have poor credit is very difficult and very expensive. And so helping consumers build credit and start to access affordable credit and, and not thinking about each one of these things as necessarily a separate product, but as, as, a, as an ecosystem that are all working together in service of helping consumers gain progress in their financial lives. And I guess I said earlier, you know, feeling this sense of agency and see, seeing that you can actually have a path towards wealth creation. And that ultimately now, you know, we're seven and a half years into our journey. We are the uh, first and still the only consumer fintech that's been granted an OCC National Bank Charter. So uh, this is through a de novo path. So Lending Club and SoFi purchased small banks, but we actually designed a business plan and went through uh, the, the process with all three of our regulators, the OCC, the FDIC, and the Federal Reserve to get approved on a de novo basis and building a bank from the ground up with the very specific intent of, of helping to promote financial inclusion and opportunity for everyday Americans. As I mentioned before, the sort of lifeblood of our economy. And I couldn't be more thrilled with the progress the team has made as we've been scaling. Uh, we can really measure the impact that we're having in the lives of our customers. We have some the probably the top MPS score in the banking industry. Um, you know, on we were like plus 80 uh, with our with our core customer base. Um, and so all of those things are sort of working very well to create something that will ultimately make the world a better place. And, and as I, you know, my team and my board and, and, and many stakeholders that have been with us on this journey see that we have the ability as we continue to scale and grow the business to positively impact societal change. And, and that, that is the most motivating thing for me. It's, I, I'm, I'm uh, motivated listening to you because your energy around it is contagious. Colin, take a few minutes and level set the industry. I hear these terms, challenger banks and neobanks. Mm -hmm. What are those and where do you fit within that realm? Sure. Well, the, the U.S. banking system is, is fairly complex because there are a lot of institutions. So you have, um, you know, your big sort of money center banks that, that have very large market share um, and, and they, you know, have big budgets and they're investing um, in, in, you know, more advanced capabilities. Unfortunately, they're somewhat beholden to their business model and they're often operating on the back office on quite old systems. Uh, they have, you know, channel conflicts and other things which uh, make it difficult to serve the uh, mass market consumer audience. And the economics are, are challenging for those large institutions. You also have sort of what you call regional banks. And unfortunately, you know, as we saw earlier this year, a number of those regional banks got into trouble because of decisions that they took in terms of thinking about liquidity and the types of customers they served and how they manage their balance sheets. So an unfortunate, you know, as you saw with SVB and, and Signature and First Republic, which kind of, you know, created some shockwaves across the entire industry. And, but you 
do have some some strong players out there that are serving different markets and different niches. And then you have a very large group of uh, so-called community banks, credit unions. You have uh, a handful of minority deposit-taking institutions and a CF, CDFIs, which are um, uh, development institutions focusing on, on different niches in the market. Uh, so there's about 5,000 uh, banks across the U.S. And then you have this new breed of players like ourselves. So you have Borrow, which again, because we're a real bank, we're a little bit different from some of these, what call them synthetic banks or neobanks that are working with smaller banks um, to leverage their charters and they're offering banking services, but they're more focused on um, the sort of user experience and how to acquire customers. Uh, but they're, the, the banking is actually handled by a small, sort of generally speaking, sort of community banks that, that um, have pivoted into this, uh, we'll call it a bank as a service model uh, working with these fintech players. So, so Varo is in a little bit of a league of its own because we're completely modern tech stack, very sophisticated data and design capabilities, uh, building products that are very much designed around the lives of our customers. And because we're a bank, having a very wide scope of things that we can do over time to be able to meet the needs of our customers. And so, so Varo is sort of a unique player in the space. I would say we do compete with uh, folks like Chime and Cash App and others, uh, and then obviously the incumbent banks, but, but we are sort of this next generation player uh, that's also, as we've talked about, incredibly mission focused. And so not just trying to uh, you know, kind of scale up and and become the next most valuable company, which of course no, no one would argue for against that. Uh, but also to scale up and have a meaningful impact on the lives of our customers. In fact, I've heard Varo referred to as perhaps the bank of the future. Let's rewind to something that you said earlier. Sixty percent of the American workforce lives paycheck to paycheck, and this is a market for you. When mm -hmm. I think about those individuals, perhaps underserved, undereducated perhaps not well financially educated in terms of how to move out of that, that, that cycle they're in, I would think that that population, of which I've been a part of in life, we've all at some point mm -hmm. been paycheck to paycheck, sometimes longer than we like, with yeah. three kids in private school, I'm still there. Mm -hmm. um, I, not exactly, but close. I would think that population would gravitate to the, the safe, the Wells Fargo, the Chases, these banks that are super mm. brand credible, how do you fight against that perception of perhaps not an especially tech savvy or financially savvy environment, no less deserving, how do you build their trust and earn their trust and even earn their attention to move over to Varro or to move or work with Varro? Sure. Well, well, first off, I want to just say that um, you know, folks that are living paycheck to paycheck, you'd be surprised how sophisticated they are because scarcity is the mother of invention when you need to make sure that the bills are paid and that the rent is well, taken care of. I mean, just to clarify, I mean, it's everybody I know with the exception of those that have three yeah. commas in their net worth. And even then, they've built a budget on next week's paycheck, right? I mean, this yeah. entire company, unless you're the founder, you're living paycheck to paycheck, even if you're earning a big six-figure income, to your point. Yeah, so many, so many Americans. And so, so to your question about how do you build trust and, and sort of earn the right to serve folks. Um, so I, I often say that, you know, the, the greatest currency we trade in 
as an institution is trust. And, and it's about the consistency of the words and the actions and what you do every day that matters. So getting so many of the basics right, but also continuing to innovate and give consumers a reason to want to do business with you. And so, so first and foremost, becoming a bank gives us some legitimacy that these other fintech players simply do not have. I mean, we're a directly regulated institution. We're a direct member of the FDIC. We're a direct uh, participant in the Federal Reserve System. And so all of that adds a level of legitimacy. But then it gets back to what I said at the beginning, building things that really matter. And so when you think about the fundamentals of, of a digital first bank account that can give you options for uh, receiving money instantly, sending money instantly, to be able to eliminate the fees and charges, to be able to give you tools to build your credit, um, being able to help you in transitions if you're between jobs by having access to job marketplace or ways to earn extra cash, uh, providing both the tools and the incentives to start building savings. So, so really the holistic design of the proposition is what ultimately gets customers to not only try us, but then decide that this is going to become their next bank and that they're going to start depositing their paycheck and engaging in the range of services that we can provide. But it's a, it's a lot of the consistency um, in the execution and in the message and the communication, which is also you know, a very important part of building any business as a leader, whether you're inside a, another institution or you're starting from scratch, is the storytelling aspect of who, who you are and why you exist and what you stand for is so essential to be able to earn the trust of your customer. Colin, I don't typically use this podcast as a marketing vehicle, but I want you, I'm going to invite you to talk about the, the customer experience. So yeah. where does someone start? Yeah, so if you like, go like, to like, our web. Like technically, where is yeah. your branch? How does someone access you on the app? And like, what does that experience look like? And you mentioned some interesting products and services you offer just beyond, you know, a checking account. Take it down from 30,000 feet to three feet and sure. walk our listeners through why their nephew or their neighbor or they themselves should be Absolutely. going to your bank. Yeah, or any of the people in their lives that are, like I said, that are the lifeblood of America right. that are that are uh, looking to live a little, little more secure, better financial life. So the first place is to start on borrowmoney.com, V-A-R-O-M-O-N-E-Y.com, and you come in and you learn about what we have to offer um, and why we're different. Um, and then you click on... Um, Start now, <laughs> start apply. And then you go into the, and if you go into mobile web, you know, it takes you right into the app where in two minutes, you can have a bank account. You can open up a bank account and then it walks you through a very sort of intuitive set of steps in terms of how to add money and how to activate your card and you can set up a digital card immediately in the app. Uh, what are the steps that you have to take to uh, get savings account and start earning the 5% APY that we pay uh, when you're a main banking customer and you're depositing $1,000 a month? And that's, you know, for, for many of our customers who are opening up their first savings account, the idea of getting paid 5% and it's up to $5,000 and it's 3% above that uh, is still a very high savings rate for so many folks that might be 
at one of these big money center banks that are paying you know basis points. Um, you can learn about how to open up the credit building card, the borrow believe card, uh, and and that sort of the steps to to help build credit and other partners that are in our app that can also help you build credit. Uh, you can learn about how to access uh, instant cash advances, and you can start using Zelle, which is a instant payment service that's available only to to banks uh, across the country uh, once you start to uh, use us with direct deposits. So, so it's, a, it's a pretty intuitive process once you come into the app and you start to go through that customer journey. And, and we've really tried to think about the end-to-end -end journey and how to make it as easy and frictionless as possible and try to reward customers with benefits and features as quickly as possible as they start to engage with us. Colin, pardon the crudeness of this, but how does a white guy in your 50s who's extraordinarily well-spoken, well-educated, traveled, lived around the world, worked for Fortune 50s, obviously not living paycheck to paycheck, if you are, don't tell me, how does this become a passion project for you that also you decided to make this a credentialized bank that follows all the regulations of all the other banks and not fall into the trap of it, you know, going under next month and screwing people. Yeah. I mean, this is a passion project for you. It really is. And and I think that, you know, if I go back to my childhood, you know, my dad was a school teacher. You know, I think I grew up in an environment where, you know, a strong set of values around, uh, you know, hard work and, and that you have to do the things that are important. But, you know, money was not, you know, widely available for, for many years there. And, you know, I, I had to like do the hard work to, to sort of get myself into a place where I could see, uh, you know, a brighter financial future. Um, and I think going back to like in high school and college, um, I was very involved in sort of community activities and volunteer activities and trying to stay very close to the fact that like this is a very diverse world we live in and people have a lot of struggles that, that need help. And they need institutions and individuals and people to to kind of extend the lifeline in many cases and, and provide the tools or the services. And, you know, all through my financial services career, as I mentioned, you know, I was building really interesting things. But, you know, I was helping people get on the housing ladder. I was helping build, you know, exciting new credit card products and uh, lines of credit for, for consumers and uh, savings accounts to help build savings habits. But, but many of them were really focused on people who were already had a leg up. Um, and then I saw the kind of the not so great side of it, where people who did not have a lot of money were paying just unbelievable charges, whether through overdraft fees or, or minimum balance fees, or if they missed a payment, um, the payment hierarchies uh, you know, within their, their repayment would, would force them into, into doing, doing things that were really, really very um, punitive. And, and you know, their APRs would jump up you know, with that missed payment, all of these things that were like, these are the most vulnerable customers. And so, so it did strike a chord for me and ultimately led to creating something that, as I mentioned before, I think could, could really help make the world a better place. And, and yeah, I mean, so maybe I am now, you know, in a different station of life and, and why would people want to listen to me? <laughs> I guess because I have practitioner experience is that I've been inside that system. I've seen where some of the flaws are and have been uh, working really hard with an amazing team of people to, um, to, to create this. Colin, I want to share a short story and then get uh, some advice from you. Sure. Uh, I live in Salt Lake City, and two of my sons are avid basketball players. 
uh, mm -hmm. broad demographic of people that are part of this, you know, kind of community basketball in, uh, up, startup. Well, there happens to be a grandmother who I believe is like is in her 70s, uh, lost a, a teenage son to a, 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 a automobile accident, divorced, and I don't think she had a strong profession in her career, but she's very smart and very credible and very trustworthy and hardworking. Mm -hmm. She has three daughters that are in their 40s. All of her mm -hmm. daughters are single and they all have children. Mm -hmm. These daughters, one is a nail technician. Mm -hmm. One, I believe, is like an intake appointment scheduler at a doctor's office. And the other, mm -hmm. I believe, is a dental assistant. I don't believe any of these daughters, although they work extremely hard, I'm guessing not any of them probably earn over $60,000, $70,000 a mm -hmm. year. But the mother, decades ago, co-signed credit cards with all of them and co-signed mortgages on townhomes. Mm -hmm. And to this day, these three daughters own their homes and have 850 plus credit scores because That's the mother had the vision, the discipline, and I think the, just the, the wisdom to turn these three daughters that were not, I don't think, well-educated, but hardworking and fine yep. people, and she's built in them this freedom and this education opportunity. These, these three daughters have a credit score that eclipses my credit score. Amazing, yeah. Well, talk about great parenting. Great parenting, <laughs> yeah. great yeah. parenting. These are, this is a yeah. lovely family. If yeah. they're listening, I hope they see this as a compliment to all of them. No one's worth is defined by their income. I've learned that the slow, That's hard right. way. As I listen to you, I am married and we have three young boys, eight, 11, mm -hmm. and 13. And I'm wondering, gosh, I wonder if I should sign them up at Varo money.com and have them put some money in and have them get one of your credit building cards so they start to build their credit score. Can you do that at age 12? I mean, not, how does that not work? Not yet. So, not, so they can do it at 18. Yeah. So, so the, the other family sounds like an absolute perfect demographic for, for, for us um, in terms of just building savings and other tools that might be very useful. I think for your children, once they get to 18, now we are thinking about some interesting ideas, I can't say too much, but that will allow um, a parent to open up parts of their banking experience to other members of their family, and so to hold that thought. <laughs> but uh, maybe in a, a, you know several months, you you may be able to have uh, a, a, an opportunity to have your your whole family participate in the borrow experience. But right now, uh, you need to be 18 to apply for the bank account. I appreciate it, uh, Colin Walsh. You're the CEO of Varo Bank. Storied career. Thanks for joining us today. Best of success to you on building the bank of the future that sticks around and changes millions of lives. Thanks so much, Scott. It's been a pleasure to be on your podcast. And by the way, Varro uh, is headquartered in Draper, Utah, so probably not too far from you. It's a small world. We're just 10 miles north in Salt Lake City. Thank you, That's Colin. Great. We'll see you back here next week for a new conversation from the C-Suite. <laughs>